Let's take our Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 10. I know this, I know the bulletin says something different for our sermon this morning, but I feel like I'd like to do something different today. Luke chapter 10. And let's start reading in verse number 25. Behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered rightly. Do this, and you will live. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Then Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at that place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend when I come again, I will repay you. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, He who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this wonderful day in the Lord's house so far. But we pray right now that you turn our attentions to, uh, to this, your word, the Bible. I pray you'd fill me with your spirit. Lord, uh, help me to say only those things I ought and nothing that I should not. And help us to have ears to hear. Speak to us, help us today. Lord, if there are those that need to hear the gospel from this passage, I pray they'd hear it. If there are those who need to be saved, I pray they'd hear the truth of it. And if there are those who need to be convicted, I pray that would happen as well. Lord, I pray you'd speak to my heart and uh, just change me and do the same for all of us. We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Who is my neighbor? That was the question. Who is my neighbor? In 1953... Sir Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay became the first people to ascend the 29,035-foot peak of Mount Everest, 1953. They were not the last. In the 1990s, Nepal lifted its once tight restrictions and opened it up so that uh, all kinds of tourist dollars could come in. And as of 2006, this is an, an older illustration, but as of 2006, more than 2,700 people had reached the summit of the world's tallest mountain. I'm sure that number is much higher now. Many people at that time were paying $60,000 or more for the experience of climbing that mountain. One result of that commercial influx had been the erosion of the traditional moral code that most climbers would have followed. In the rush to the top, amateurs who had paid a fortune just for the bragging rights, well, they'll do anything it takes to get to the summit including abandoning other climbers. David Sharp from Cleveland, he was 34 years old, became a casualty of that mentality in 2006. He made it to the summit. 
However, he ran out of oxygen on the way back down, 984 feet from the top. And as he lay there dying, 40 climbers passed him by, too eager to achieve their own goals of getting to the top, to take a chance on using up their oxygen on somebody else. And so as a result, David Sharp froze to death. According to one man, Ed Vistrius, who has scaled all 14 of the world's 8,000-meter peaks, he says it's not unusual. David Sharp's death was not unusual. He said this, and I quote, passing people who are dying is not uncommon. Unfortunately, there are those who say it's not my problem. I've spent all this money, and I'm going to the summit. And that attitude has produced some, some, some real disgust amongst real climbers, including Sir Edmund Hillary. Edmund Hillary said this, he said, on my expedition, there was no way you'd have left a man under a rock to die. Who is my neighbor? That was the question. And stories such as that of David Sharp, or maybe videos such as this that we've just viewed, remind us that the answer to that question eludes us just as much today as it did in Jesus' day. Who is my neighbor? When Jesus or when the lawyer asked this question of Jesus, he responded with what some have called his most beloved parable, his most well-known parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And so this morning I want to just spend a couple minutes and learn some things from that, see if it will help us. Let's think, first of all, about the characters in this parable. The characters, there are basically four. There is, first of all, the victim. Can you describe the victim for me? Probably not, because we don't have any description of the victim. We don't know anything about him. He was just a nondescript person. He was just a man. Nothing more, nothing special, nothing unusual about him. He was just a man, a victim. Then there was the priest. In the Jews' religion, this man occupied the very, very highest office, the priest. They were the ones responsible for offering sacrifices for the people. They were the intermediaries, the go-between between God and men, the priests. Then there was the Levite. In the Jews' religion, this was another person who occupied a high office. This was a servant in the temple. The Levites were the musicians. We had some up here this morning. The Levites were the doorkeepers. You met some of those and shook their hands as you walked in the door this morning. The Levites were the singers, the musicians, the doorkeepers, basically any type of service that you could think of that took place in the temple. That was the Levites. Uh, maybe, maybe we might liken them to the deacons of our day. And they were the ones responsible for all aspects of worship. So the victim, the priest, the Levite. Then there was number four. There was the Samaritan. The Samaritan. Samaritans were despised people, despised by the Jews. They were a, a group of people consisting of, uh, they, they had intermarried. They, had, they, were, they were consisting of both Jew and Gentile. They were a half-breed, mongrel-type people to the Jewish mind. And therefore they despised them. You can see a little bit about what they thought of them if you flip over to John chapter 4. Go there with me, John chapter 4, and you'll see just a little bit, a little idea of how the Jewish people thought of the Samaritans. Look at uh, verse 5, John chapter 4, verse 5. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well, and it was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. 
Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. That's the way they thought about the Samaritans. No dealings. Nothing to do with them. So we have four characters in this parable. The victim, the priest, the Levites, and finally, the Samaritan. Let's notice, number two, the differing reactions to the need. We've seen the characters. Let's see the differing reactions to the need. How did the priest and the Levite respond? Basically the same way. They responded similarly, and it was not good. They responded wrongly. They gave the response of a non-neighbor. Look what they did. They were on the same road as the victim. This was not somebody who was far off. This was not somebody who they could say, well, I couldn't see him. They were on the same road. They were right at hand. And they were there by chance. I want us to set that phrase aside for a minute because we're going to come back and talk about it. I don't think it means what we think it means. They were there by chance. They saw him. They saw him. It plainly says that they saw him. They can't say, well, I didn't notice that guy laying there. No, they did. They saw him. That would indicate that they saw his need. It's doubtful that he was laying there bleeding and battered and busted to pieces. And they didn't notice that little fact. They saw him. They saw his need. They saw he was dying, and they did not care enough to take action. Takes away the excuse, doesn't it, for inaction. Jesus was clear here that they were perfectly aware of his need. And that makes their inactivity all the more inexcusable, doesn't it? They saw him. They walked by on the other side of the road. They not only saw him, but they chose to distance themselves from him and walk by on the other side of the road. Heartless, isn't it? It just sounds terrible. And there's other examples of that kind of heartlessness in Scripture. I always like to think of Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus is one of my favorite stories in the Bible. You remember blind Bartimaeus. Jesus is walking along the road. And blind Bartimaeus is sitting there by the highway state begging. You can read about this in Luke chapter 18. And as he's walking, as he hears this crowd approaching Jesus coming, he asks what's going on. And somebody says, Jesus of Nazareth is coming. And he begins to shout, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. And he's crying for him. And you know what the crowd said? The crowd said, would you be quiet? Shut up! It's the same basic response, isn't it? Heartless. Not the slightest bit interested in helping. And it's not a new attitude. It's, it's one that's as old as Eden. We would like to think that it's just, you know, we live in such a bad time. And we do live in a bad time. But all times have been bad from the beginning of time. And uh, even back in Eden, or right after Eden, Genesis chapter 4, the Lord said unto Cain, Where is Abel thy brother? And he said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? That's the attitude, isn't it? Heartless. That's the priests and the Levite. I recall reading somewhere, and I don't remember where I read this, that there were approximately 12,000 priests and Levites during this time who lived in Jericho. Now, I don't know if that's true. That seems like a ridiculously high number to me, but I, I did read that somewhere. 12,000 priests. Who lived and Levites, who lived in Jericho at this time. They would take their turn serving in the temple, and then they would return home to Jericho until the next time they were to serve. And you can't help but imagine, can you? They, they, didn't, they didn't serve that often. And so when they would go and they would serve in the temple and they'd be on their way back, wouldn't their hearts be filled? I mean, you know, this morning I feel like I've been in church. I've enjoyed the worship, and when I go out of this place, I'm going to be happy and rejoicing and thinking about the things of God. And wouldn't they have been that way as they walked along? You'd expect their hearts to be filled with religious thoughts and the desire to serve God. But one commentator said this. He said, apparently they had left God at the temple, for they showed absolutely no religious compassion here. And it's so true. It's so true of us. It's so true of 
of, of, of all of, of our world today. Here's another story that I read. This took place in, uh, I guess, uh, well, the story was written in 2004, but it references a study that took place at Princeton in 1973. So it's a ways back. I don't think it would be any different today. It says, in research done by Darley and Batson at Princeton in 1973, a group of theology students, did you get that? Theology students. We could paraphrase that as preachers. A group of theology students was told that they were to go across campus to deliver a sermon on the topic of the Good Samaritan. And as part of the research, some of these students were told that they were late and needed to hurry up. And along their route across campus, Darley and Batson had hired an actor to play the role of a victim who was coughing and suffering and going through all sorts of agony. Ninety percent. Ninety percent of the late students in Princeton Theological Seminary ignored the needs of the suffering person in their haste to get across campus. And as the study reports, quote, indeed on several occasions a seminary student going to give his talk on the parable of the Good Samaritan literally stepped over the victim as he hurried away, end quote. That just astonishes me on one hand. And on the other it doesn't because I know my heart. And maybe I'd have been in that 90%, I don't know. You see, the priest... And the Levite demonstrate the reaction of many Christians to those in need. We see it. And then we walk right on by. The other side of the road. Be analogous, wouldn't it, to the elder or deacon of a church leaving a church service on their way home, seeing somebody laying bleeding by the side of the road and just drive right on by. A couple Wednesday nights ago, I shared this with the, on Wednesday night. I don't know if I shared it on a Sunday morning or not, but a couple of Wednesday nights ago, this very thing happened. We were here, had prayer meeting here, and as we left prayer meeting, I was driving home. I was driving down New Milford Road, my road. I drive down it all the time. I drive by my neighbor's houses all the time. I have no idea who this person was, to my shame. But as I drove down the road, I noticed something out of the corner of my eye laying at the end of this person's driveway. And, you know, as you're, as you're going down and you're not really looking, you just see something, you kind of, you kind of make a, uh, comparison as to what it might be. I, I thought it must be like a dumpster, a uh, trash dumpster. That was the first thought that came to my mind. Well, there's trash is out there. Yeah. But then as I got closer and closer, I saw that, it, that there was actually a body lying there. And then I looked closer. It wasn't a dumpster. It was an ATV that he had wrecked at the end of his driveway. It was laying on him. There's blood all over the place. And so I stopped and helped. Don stopped as he came by. He lives on the same road. Phil stopped as he came by. It was quite a scene. Imagine if we just drove right on by. That's what, that's what the priest and the Levite did. Maybe we just pressed down on the gas and keep going. Why? The Browns are playing today. Sunday dinner is burning. I've got to get home. Family's coming over this afternoon. I can't be bothered. That's the priest and the Levite. Well, what about the Samaritan? The Samaritan showed the right response, didn't he? He showed that of a true neighbor. Notice what he did. He came where he was. Same thing the priest and the Levite did. He came where he was. He saw him, just like the priest and the Levite did. But he took pity on him. He cared. He went to him where he was. He bandaged, medicated his wounds. He met his immediate need. He put him on his own donkey. And we don't think about that very often, but really what that means is now he had to walk. Though it was costing him something, there was some sacrifice here. He had to give up his own comfort, his own ease, in order to give this person a ride. He took him to an inn and took care of him. That required a detour 
that affected his plans, messed up his day, cost him financially, and with respect to his time. He basically put his life on hold to help this stranger. He provided for his longer-term needs. He arranged for his future care. He promised to come back and take care of his additional needs in the future. That was the response of the Samaritan. And when Jesus asked the lawyer, which man obeyed the commandment to love his neighbor? He rightly pointed to the Samaritan. And that must have just about galled him because he was Jewish. The Samaritans were despised. But he had to say the Samaritan. Because the Samaritan models what it means to love your neighbor. So we've seen the characters, we've seen the reactions, the responses. Let's just make a couple of applications and then we'll be done. A couple of applications. First of all, nothing happens by chance. Remember I said we were going to come back to that? Nothing happens by chance. It's interesting that little phrase that's used there in verse 31. Uh, Now by chance a certain priest came down that road and when he saw him he passed by on the other side. If you're looking at a different translation of the Bible, it might say something like a priest just happened to come by, by chance. But I don't think for a minute that the Holy Spirit is meaning to convey to us that this was just a random occurrence. I don't think that's the case at all. As a matter of fact, I think when we read such a thing as that in the Bible, it means exactly the opposite. It means to us, to us it would look like it was by chance, but in the eyes of God this was planned all along. This is an indication of the sovereignty of God. It reminds us that nothing happens by chance with God. One man said in the providence of God or in the arrangements of the gospel, there is no such thing as chance. I have been interviewing old-time preachers for our old-fashioned Sunday. Those of you who have been here before on old-fashioned Sunday know what I'm I'm saying when I say that. I've been reading a whole bunch of old sermons trying to find one from an old preacher to share on old-fashioned Sunday. And I was listening to Payday Someday by R.G. Lee this past week. Anybody ever listen to that sermon? Amazing. You ought to listen to that sermon. It's good. But the whole sermon is about Ahab. Remember Ahab? Ahab was the wicked, disgusting king who uh, stole the, the uh, vineyard of, uh, of Naboth away from him. You remember that? Killed him. Had him killed. Well, Jezebel really did it, but Ahab was responsible. And Elijah the prophet came to them one day and he said, you know, dogs are going to eat your blood and you're going to pay for this. That's the whole purpose of the sermon. Payday someday. And the interesting thing about the way Ahab met his end, you can read about it. Uh, where is it here? It's in 1 Kings chapter 22. You can read about Ahab. Ahab went for several years thereafter without seeing any real response to that. But then one day he was in a battle. And the Bible says that an archer, doesn't name his name, we don't know who this person was, just some random archer, uh, drew a bow at random, just pulled back a bow and shot an, he shot an arrow in the air. And where it came down, he knew not where. But God knew where. It came down right between a little chink in the armor in Ahab and killed him. Nothing happens by chance. Absolutely nothing. God is in control. What happens to you and I doesn't happen by chance. It's on purpose. It's his purpose. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delights in his way, the psalmist said. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Paul told the Romans, God is in control, and he guides your every step. And if something happens to you today, it's because God wills it. If somebody is placed in your path that needs help, it's because God put them there and God put you there God wanted you to meet that person at that time today nothing happens by chance let's think of another application another application is we Christians should be the most likely to help not the least likely 
One man said concerning the priests and the Levite, These two spiritual leaders should have been the first to translate their faith in God into concern for the battered body of the traveler. Is it any wonder that the church, the world has such a low view of the church? Is it any wonder when that kind of hypocrisy is what they see? How many of us, like this priest and Levite, leave God at the church on Sunday? How many who name the name of Christ are willing to add a little Christianity to their lives on Sunday, but then the rest of the week, nothing? When the doors of the church swing shut behind them, they're like this priest and this Levite. No thought of living out their faith during the week. No notice of those they see around them in need. No interest in taking of their time to serve others. Too busy. I gave on Sunday. Too busy. And so we need to hear the words of our Lord this morning. We should be the most likely to help. Here's another application. It costs to be a good neighbor. It costs. I think this is a key component in the Samaritan's response we don't, we don't think about a lot. It cost him something. There was a cost to this. Some would say it cost him a lot. It cost him his time, his comfort, his convenience, his plans, his money. You know, it's not possible to serve Jesus without it costing. Too many of us want to follow Jesus. We want to serve Jesus until we find out this little hitch in the plans. It costs something. It's not easy. It requires us to give up our leisure. It requires us to worship him with time and talents and, and even finances. It's hard to be a Christian. It's hard to be a neighbor to those who need us to be neighbors. Now, on the other hand, it's also true that there is no greater reward. Let's not, let's not get depressed about this because you can't outgive God. And uh, there is no greater reward than serving Christ by serving others. The reward is always greater than the cost. It may not be in this life, but it will be. So it costs, but it will be worth it. One last application, and that's this. It is the Lord's will that we be neighbor to those in need. It is the Lord's will that we be neighbor to those in need. Notice he said, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. I don't need to spend a lot of time on that one. It's pretty clear. Just mention it. Jesus didn't say this as a suggestion. It was an expectation. It was a command. It is what he want, wanted from the lawyer. It's what he wants from you and I. This same truth is repeated all throughout the Bible. He wants us to be a neighbor to those in need. Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. Romans 15.2 All the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Galatians 5.14 If you fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. James 2.8 We're to care more about the neighbor. Care more about others than we do ourselves. Let no man Seek his own, but every man another's wealth, 1 Corinthians 10. Let, look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others, Philippians chapter 2. So who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Do you love your neighbor as yourself? Do we as a church love our neighbors and our community as ourselves? Do we see them in their need? Do we go to them? Do we offer them aid even when it costs? Do we share with them the medicine that can help them? Are we acting toward others as this Samaritan acted toward this person? The Lord's been speaking to my heart about this lately. I'm preaching this sermon to myself this morning more than anybody else in the room. 
because I think it's something that I needed to hear. You know, here at uh, Friendship Bible Church, we have several ministries that have been on my heart a little bit lately. Ministries that provide opportunities to live out what the Samaritan lived out here. Let me just share a couple of them with you. Opportunities that we have to obey this great commandment of the Savior. One takes place the first Saturday of every month. The Haven of Rest. Every Saturday, the first Saturday of every month we gather, a few gather, the Haven of Rest in Akron. Set up tables. Dish soup. Ladle out food. Pour drinks. And then afterwards, clear the tables. Sweep the floors. And go home. It's really a simple ministry. There's really absolutely nothing to it. I wish more would get involved. But what a way it is to respond to the needs of others, as this Samaritan did. But the other one, the other ministry that's on my heart, and I think you can probably guess what it is, because we've been hammering you with it all morning this morning, and that's reaching Randolph, one door at a time. You know, for years we've been trying to reach this little community for Christ. And we've been trying to go door to door and gather a group of people that that would do this. Everybody today has an idea or ideas about how to impact their communities. But Jesus told us how to do it. There's no need to try to figure it out. There's no need to try to reinvent it. Jesus made it very, very clear. He told us that we are to go, we're to make disciples, we're to do it everywhere, and we're to keep on doing it until Jesus comes. He said evangelism and discipleship, that's the way. And that don't need to tell us what we're supposed to do. He told us how. He sent his disciples out, two by two, and door to door. He said that we ought to go into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in. Now, as I said, we, we've been trying for years to do this. And if you look at that little map over there, a little reaching Randolph one door at a time, just to the right of the missions board, you can go there and you can see that several roads in this town have been covered in the last few years. The ones that are highlighted have been covered, but most have not. And see, I think this is why the Lord has laid this on my heart so much right now, because we are in the midst of this building program and all of Randolph is buzzing about what in the world is going on down there at that church. We've heard some hilarious rumors that people have shared about what's going on down here, which is, of course, not true, but the kind of things that people hear. And here's what that translates to. That translates to this astonishing opportunity we have right now. And we have a window about that big until this building is done and everybody gets bored with it and that window closes. We have this opportunity. I have discovered that as you knock on doors right now, and as you talk to people right now in Randolph, that the, the very people who might have said, ah, I'm not, uh, I don't want to talk about that. I'm not interested in that. And they might be closing the door uh, to say goodbye to you. Then wait a minute. They, then they say, well, did you say Friendship Bible Church? Is that the church down there? What is going on down there anyway? And they have this interest that they would not have had if this wasn't going on. We have this door that is open right now. And I think it's so important. That we step through. A great door is open unto me, Paul said. A great door for us to reach our neighbors, our lost and dying neighbors. We pass them every day. We drive by their houses every day. We walk by them. We drive past their driveways. Do we see their need? Do we know they are lost and without hope? Will we go to them? Or will we pass by on the other side?